Mark 3, 31 through 35 says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Good morning. My name is Ryan. I'm on staff, and I get a chance to work with these, these students that you've seen as part of the service today. I get to see them a lot, and I'm glad that you get to see them as well, because they are part of the body, are they not? Don't they have gifts to offer? I mean, this for the church, they are part of it too, and I'm grateful for an opportunity like this morning for them to be able to show what they are about. It is a, a blessing. Like I said, I work with students, and one of the, the big ways that we're able to make everything happen with student ministry during the year is what we do at the banquet. Raise your hand if you've been to the banquet before. We did it last year. We brought it back. It was here at the, in the lobby. And, man, this is the culmination of what we do in terms of how we help uh, fundraise and provide opportunities for students to be able to go on uh, mission trips. We went to Haiti last year. We went to Joplin, Missouri. And... Uh, the banquet is the opportunity for the entire body to come around the, these group of students to support them and encourage them, specifically our seniors that are going to be graduating. Uh, this year it's on May 5th, which just happens to be Cinco de Mayo, and yes, we're going to have a little different theme this year. There may or may not be a mariachi band that welcomes you when you come in. <laughs> that is going to happen. I would really, on a side note, I would really love to see Rob Jankowski with a sombrero on his head being sung to by the mariachi band. I'm going to try to get a picture of that. I'm going to do my best, okay? Uh, but man, what a, what a great opportunity this is going to be. And you have a part to play in this as well. You can buy a ticket. They're not for sale yet, but here in the next couple of weeks, it will be announced when you can start buying your tables and tickets. Uh, you can donate to the silent auction, because some of you guys get real competitive with the silent auction and the live auction. You can donate things for that. Last year, we auctioned off a motorcycle, we had never done that before, so it doesn't matter how small or big it is, we will find a way to get it sold, and all proceeds do go to the students going on trips. I'll also say this, there are a lot of students that cannot afford to go on these trips, so if you cannot participate in the banquet, you can't donate anything, you're looking for a way to help, then a financial contribution to scholarship students to be able to go on trips is a, a way to allow them to see God move in ways that they've never seen before. Uh, so be thinking about that, you'll be seeing things come in the next couple weeks. Now, let's dive deep into our assigned text this morning, Mark 3, chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. What an interesting dynamic we are going to see in this passage, because Jesus has to have some harsh words for his mother and his family. We're going to talk about what exactly is going on here. Before we do that, we need to stop and make sure we know where we are in Mark's story. Because the last couple of weeks, we've been stepping through chapters 1 and 2. And if you've been with us, you know that, man, we are at a, a breakneck speed here. We are really hopping and skipping through this gospel to see exactly what the life and ministry of Jesus is all about. We see the word immediately come up again and again and again. And we've seen Jesus heal on the Sabbath. We've seen him cast out demons. We've seen him get into some situations with the religious leaders. And now we start to see crowds begin to form in the beginning of Mark chapter 3. And we also see then Jesus choosing his disciples. You see it there? If you have your Bible open, you see it? He chooses his disciples, and that begins to create a different dynamic 
in the life and ministry of Jesus. No longer is he just trying to redefine what it means to, to be a good Jewish person on a Sunday or what you're supposed to say or do. He's, he's not merely redefining it. He is symbolically, and the Jews would have definitely would not have missed this, he's choosing 12 disciples, signifying the 12 tribes of ancient Israel. And he is saying, in effect, I am creating a new people. I'm creating a new nation. In fact, I'm creating a new kingdom. And so throughout Mark chapter 3, we're going to see Jesus working through and talking through different groups of people, including his family, about what that looks like. Specifically, what does it mean to be a disciple in this new kingdom? What does it mean to be a disciple in this new kingdom? Because Jesus is saying, hey, my kingdom is not just some small little thing you can set to the side. It really is all-encompassing. I think it will take your entire life, and it's bigger than you could ever possibly know. When I think about that, I am, uh, my mind goes to the Chronicles of Narnia. Raise your hand. Are you familiar with that, that group of books? There are seven books, and there have been movies made about them. I love what C.S. Lewis has done in those books because it just creates some sort of whimsical notion in my heart about what eternity is going to be like. It gets me going. And you may be familiar with the third book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and we see Aslan fighting the Wicked Witch, and we see all that going on. Well, my mind goes to the seventh book, called The Last Battle, and we see the forces of good led by Aslan defeat the, the forces of evil, and Aslan is welcoming all the animals who talk and all of the, the people into his new heaven, this new kingdom that he's creating. And we read this. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forefoot on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. Come further up, come further in. I think what Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 3, and we're going to see this, is he is inviting us to come further up, come further in to his kingdom. Don't just sit on the outside, the, the, you know, this, on the, the fringes of what his kingdom is supposed to be, about you know, what the family is supposed to be. Yes, the family is important. Yes, we need to protect it. Yes, it has a, a specific function that it needs to play. But it's as though Jesus is saying, hey, as he interacts with his own family, don't just focus on, the, on this. Come further up and come further in. Let me show you what my kingdom is all about. So as we read the, the text again this morning, be thinking about how Jesus is inviting you inviting us further up and further in. Let's read it again. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, standing outside. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, for whoever does the will of God. We'll come back to that. He is my brother and sister and mother. So as we look at this specific text this morning, I think Jesus is answering two questions. He's answering one question explicitly, and he is asking one question implicitly. I'm going to do my best to walk through the explicit question by using a statement that's got three phrases. It'll provide some structure for our discussion this morning. And then there's also an implicit question that Jesus asks. So let's get to the explicit question first. Let me phrase it this way. I think Jesus is answering this. What does it mean to be in the family of God? Or to say it a different way, what does the family of God look like? What does the family of God look like? 
when we look, when we see this, this text, Jesus is forced to rebuke his parents. That is not an easy thing to do. No one likes to be rebuked. Yet Jesus is not saying that he doesn't care about his family. He doesn't say that he doesn't respect his family. He doesn't say that family isn't important, but he's ushering them further up and further into his kingdom. He doesn't want even his family to miss what his kingdom is all about, what, his, what being a disciple is all about. That's the explicit question. And then we see this implicit question. I think Jesus is answering this. What does it look like to be a parent in God's kingdom? Do we have any parents in the house today? Old and young parents? Okay, I see you. I see you. Uh, I think that we, have, we see this special interaction between Jesus and his mother. Now, we don't see Joseph in the picture. Most likely, scholars believe if he's not mentioned, he's probably passed away. So Jesus is specifically addressing his siblings and his mother. And we see that Mary, even though she's the mother of Jesus, she has her own expectations of what Jesus is supposed to be doing. I mean, we see, if you hop up to verse 21, after Jesus calls his disciples, his family thinks he's crazy. They think he's crazy. They don't know what he's about. Yet here in verses 31 to 35, Jesus responds in a way that gives us some context for how we as parents should view Christian parenting. What are we supposed to be doing? We'll get to that question in a minute. Let's start with this first question. What does the family of God look like? Here, I think, is the answer that Jesus is giving. It's in a a three-part statement. Those in the family of God see Jesus for who he really is. They trust in who Jesus is and obey what Jesus said. Jesus is saying, okay, family, family bonds, I get it, but this is really what it means to be in the family, to see Jesus for who he is, to trust in who Jesus is, and obey what he said. So let's look at this first one. How do we see Jesus for who he really is? How does Jesus want to be seen? If I was to pull 100 people outside of the church, I wonder what, my, what the responses would be. They'd probably be all over the place, but I'm sure we'd hear things about how he's a good teacher, how he loves people, he's known for that. Maybe they would say he was crazy, okay? I get that. What if we pulled 100 people inside the church? What would the, what would the results be? See, I still think there would be a whole spectrum of responses, I think a lot of them would fall in those same kind of categories. He's, man, he's kind and he loves me and man, when I really need him, when I'm feeling down, he makes me feel good and yet yeah, he saved me. Those things are all true. I'm not saying that they're not, but we have to have a, an equal, a balanced view of who God is. It can't just be one side. If we mess that up and we start to only think about the way that Jesus gives us things or makes us feel good, we can fall into what's called moralistic therapeutic deism. I'm not expecting you to be able to understand what that is or even say it because I've had to practice saying it and make sure I don't mess it up. Moralistic therapeutic deism. But when I think about all these, the, the, the components of that definition, I start to get an image in my mind that looks a lot like this image here. Have you ever seen this? You ever worn a shirt like this? Ever seen someone with, I'm not condemning people that, that have worn shirts or, or supported this. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying this, it is really important that we have the, the right view of Jesus, the way that he wants to be viewed, because the Bible has a lot to say about Jesus dying on a cross, which looks a whole lot different than that. See, it's really easy for us to redefine Jesus into who we want to be. We, often we put him and make him into our image. So if that's not how we're supposed to see Jesus, how are we supposed to see Jesus? If you've been following along in Mark, you know that we've 
we've created this image, this context for the sermon series where Jesus is a servant king, a servant king. We've tried to create some balance to how we view Jesus. Yes, he serves us in all these great ways, but he's also a king. A king is in charge. A king is Lord. So we have to balance both sides. See, Jesus as a servant, man, he has loved us and served us in ways that we can't even fully understand. Each day, his mercies are new, and we get to experience that afresh. But as a king, he requires things that we don't fully comprehend. In our entire life, we're trying to get a better understanding of what he's asking for, and ultimately, it's our very selves. See, this thing we call life, it's all about him. It's rooted in him. We get our purpose and meaning from him. Abraham Kuyper says this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. There is no sacred, secular divide, and that includes our very lives, our very selves. We can read ourselves into that statement. We can read ourselves into the story of Genesis 1, and we know that God, to make sure it was very clear, he stamped us with his image so we would never forget whose we are and whose we live for, who we serve. But do you see, do you see Jesus that way? Do you see him that way? See, there are many in Mark chapter 3 that have an opportunity to see him as Jesus wants to be seen, but they, they mess it up. The disciples are included. Sure, they, are, they follow him. We're going to talk about that in a second. But later on in the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels, we see that he, he is not what they thought he was going to be. He's much more than they thought he was going to be, and they have to, they have to change their view of him. They have their own perspective of what the Messiah is supposed to be doing. The religious leaders, they don't like what they see, and they even mess this up so much that they think that he is in league with the devil in the removal of demons. This is life and death stuff. We can't just pretend that we can see Jesus for whoever we want because we can get it that wrong. And the family of Jesus is not excluded. See, they have seen him grow up and live and be in the temple and serve and all these things, yet in verse 21, they think he's crazy, and they come and they try to save him. This is Mary included, the mother of Jesus, who, remember, was visited by the angel in the birth narrative, and the angel sits down with her and explains, this is what he's going to be. This is what he's going to do. And yet, as a mother, she loses sight of where God is leading her child. Her expectations don't quite match up with the life that her child is living, and so she tries to intervene. And here is where I think we get to this second question, this implicit question that Jesus answers, what does it look like to be a parent in God's kingdom? Before we answer, remember that Jesus is a grown man in this account. He's, 30, he's in his mid to low 30s, okay? and yet his mother is still coming to him, thinking he's crazy, and trying to save him out of this group of people. As a 32-year-old man, that's the last thing I would want, is my mom or dad trying to save me in that way. It doesn't work. So I think the implication is that even us older parents can get this idea of parenting distorted. So parents, young and old alike, what is our job in raising our kids? What is our job raising our kids? I think if I was, had everyone write that out and I would read the responses, we would be all over the place about how we would put words to what that's supposed to look like. Is it a pie-in-the-sky idea? How do we make it practical? I think the reason why we would get this distorted is because we've lost sight of what godly Christian parenting is supposed to be. I think oftentimes as parents, 
and this is coming from someone that has a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and I work with the high school kids here at this church, I think as parents, we can, we can flip this on its, on its head. I think we raise our kids at times to do us proud rather than raising our kids to bring God glory. I think we raise our kids at times to do us proud rather than raising our kids to bring God glory. Crawford Loritz is a pastor down in Atlanta, and he defines Christian parenting this way, and it's helped my thinking a lot. He says, Christian parenting is to raise our kids to walk with God and go where they where he leads them. Christian parenting is to raise our kids to walk with God and to go where he leads them. That means if you're if you're son or daughter, no matter what their age, if they are walking after God, implicitly it means that we have to be willing to let them walk where God's leading them. God's vision for their life may not be your vision for their life. Do we get that? God's vision for their life supersedes any vision that we have. It supersedes everything. See, I think this incorrect view of parenting stems from the fact that we at some foundational level, think that our kids are ours. We think that our kids are ours, and that's an easy mistake to make. Conrad, who turns four this week, and Remy, who's seven months, man, I love them so much. And oftentimes, I can get my identity wrapped up into how uh, much I love them and, and the, being a parent of them. It's easy to do. But guess what? They're not mine. They're his. They were never mine. They've always been His. Sometimes we think we have rights over our kids. We don't have rights. God does. God has rights over our kids. We are just simply called to steward their lives. Yes, that means that we, we raise them. The Bible talks about we have to raise them. We have to, we have to train them up. Yes, we have to equip them. We have to protect them. Yes, but they're not ours. They're not ours. So we guide them, but we don't control them. We guide our kids, but don't control them. We protect them, but we don't shelter them. We should be teaching our kids how to live. We have to be teaching our kids how to live. That doesn't mean that you're not going to make mistakes, because guess what you are? If you're an older parent, you're like, amen, I've messed it up time and time again. But if we're supposed to train our kids, if we're supposed to lead them, that means we lead them to the very feet of Jesus. We should be showing them what a a life, a portrait of dependence upon God looks like. We should be falling at our feet, at, at the feet of Jesus, asking for forgiveness, asking for wisdom, staying in his word, and guess what? Our kids see it. Our kids see it. Final word to parents. If you've been around uh, New Hope, you know there are a lot of young parents like me, a lot of expectant mothers. We're called to release our kids, but that does not begin when they go to college. Releasing our kids to the will of God does not begin when they're born. It begins with that first pregnancy test, that, that, like the most fearful day of your entire life when you see that. You know everything changes, and it does change because now you're having to steward the life that God has entrusted to you. At that very moment, you're a parent. And guess what? That doesn't stop until you are in the arms of Jesus. See, I'm 32 years old. I don't know what it looks like to live a faithful life, to be faithful to my wife, to depend on God in my 50s or my 60s or my 70s. I need my parents to show me that. Your kids 
no matter what their age, need you to show them that every single day of your life. You're called to that. They don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it looks like when my spouse, when Catherine forgets my name. And now I've got to figure out how I serve her. We need our parents to show us. We need you as a body to show us, even in our 30s. See, it doesn't matter if our kids are young or old. We should be raising our kids to get on their faces before God, to find out why they were born, and to live their lives based on that. And we, as parents, should be their biggest cheerleaders every single step of the way. But we can't do that if we don't see Jesus for who he really is. What does he look like? Let's keep answering that first question. What does it mean to be in the family of God? What does the family of God look like? Those in the family of God see Jesus for who he is. They also trust in who Jesus is. What does it mean to trust in Jesus? What does that look like? Well, I often come to the lives of the disciples. To me, trust is following, trusting in someone or something when I don't know what the consequences are going to be. I don't know where I'm going or what's happening. That was very much true of the disciples. Here they are fishing Collecting taxes, Jesus calls them and they follow. They don't know where they're going or what they're going to be doing, but they do know who they're going with and who was going before them. So they trust. When I think about this, uh, an account, a conversation with my brother Caleb comes to mind. Uh, we grew up in the church. Caleb is the third brother of the kings. He's also the ugliest, okay? If you're forever together, you can just... I'm not going to let, you can guess where I am in that. I'm not going to worry about that. Okay, but he, he is, uh, he was telling me this story. He went to go play golf with a buddy in Fort Leavenworth, Texas, where there's a prison and there's also a military base there. I, I didn't know when he was telling me that. I'm like, hold on, you can go play golf on a military base? Then I got thinking and I was like, yeah, you can play golf because he borrowed my clubs. I know he went and played golf because he borrowed my clubs and he broke my three wood and he returned it broken and I still don't have a replacement three wood and I'm, I'm not bitter about it. No, I'm not. I'm horrible at golf anyway. So, but yeah, my brother, he he's a, was a contractor with the Department of Defense, and so he would go on to military bases from time to time, and he explained this process to me. He said, you know, you come, uh, you hopefully have all your paperwork done in time. He even said when he was, he was golfing, they went in the wrong entrance and came up to the angry guy with the gun and had to do a turnaround, and that was, a, he said, a very scary experience. He never made that mistake again. But he said that he had to complete a, a background check, but all these different documents, it's like 100 pages of documents that he had to fill out for the government. I'm, and part of me is like, hold on, the government already knows where you lived and what you're doing. They're listening to you right now. But nonetheless, they still had to fill this out, fill this out, and explain every, everything about you, every single thing. And in order, and then once that was approved, then you were able to go in, get past the angry guy with the gun, and go do what you wanted to do on the base. As I was thinking about this, and as he was describing it to me, I was thinking because he, see, he's not able to access that base based on what he wrote in his in his documentation. I mean, yes, he needed to fill it out properly and, and check all the boxes, but. Ultimately, it's not just him. It's not like he can just walk up to the, to the gate with his paperwork and expect to walk in. No, he had to have someone that had gone before him that had given him the rubber stamp of approval. So when he showed up at the gate with the angry guy with the gun, he was able to walk through. And that got me thinking about what it means to trust Jesus. 
because Caleb wasn't able to access the base on his own merit. He had to, he was able to access the base because who had gone before him. And that sounds a whole lot like our Christian faith. That we have someone that's gone before us who has paid the price. He sits in authority. He's given us his stamp of approval and has done what it needs to be done in order, for our to be, in order for us to be in the presence of God. His name is Jesus. The Bible tells of him. Do you trust him? Is he going before you? Let's go to the third part of this answer. What does it mean to be in the family of God? What does the family of God look like? We trust in the fam- or those in the family of God see Jesus for who he is, trust in who he is, and obey what he said. Obey what he said. This really is the crux of what Jesus is speaking about when he interacts with his family in verses 34 and 35. Remember he says, and looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. See, we could spend hours on this verse, this concept of obedience. I think you could, if you were having to summarize the entire Bible and reduce it to one word, I think you could make a case that that word would be obedience. We spend our entire lives trying to answer the question, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I mean, we're trying to seek him and we want that answer. So what does it mean to obey God? What does obedience look like in our lives? Well, we're going to step out of the book of Mark to Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Hopefully that sounds familiar to you. It says, if anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And that's true. We could stop right there. But as we read Mark chapter 3, and we see this interaction between Jesus and his family, I think we could change the words and read it this way. If anyone would come after me, let him stop looking at himself and look to me for who I really am. Let him trust in me and what I've done and the fact that I'm going before you and obey me. See, this idea of obedience, it can become very abstract. We could talk about it. We could discuss it. What does it mean to be obedient? I think the real question is this. What is, what is God asking you to do? I can't tell you. What is, what is God asking you to do? Have you asked him lately? Have you been at the feet of Jesus and asked him, God, what do you want me to do? Have you talked to him lately? Have you talked to him lately? I think when it comes to obedience, maybe this should be the question or the filter for how we should live our lives. Jesus, what would please you most? Ask him this. Jesus, what would please you most? And then do that. And then do that. See, when a a group of people see Jesus for who he is, trust in him, obey him, the Bible gives that group of people a, a name. Have you heard of this? The church? That's what, that's what the church is. That's what we are. That's what this is right here. Not this building. That's what we are. This isn't an ordinary thing. God didn't design this to be a Sunday morning to Sunday morning kind of thing. This is not ordinary. This is sacred. Jesus died for this. He died for this. And so that's why I think Paul in the book of Ephesians gives us three different portraits of what the church looks like. This is how we're going to finish this morning, and you should be familiar with this. We are God's building, we are his body, and we are his bride. We're his building, his body, and his bride. 
So let's look at this first one briefly. God's buildings, Ephesians 2, we read, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. See, we are part of something, a holy something, a set-apart something, where God lives, he's living Right now, he's living in us. He's moving in us. We're built together on a foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. We stay connected to him, and we stay connected to one another. So that way, when the world comes at us and bangs on us, guess what? We don't move. We stay rooted, firmly connected to our cornerstone, Jesus. We're also God's body. 1 Corinthians 12 talks at length about this, but in Ephesians 4 we see Paul saying this, Rather we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it is building itself up in love. See, we're a body. We are connected in all the ways that maybe we don't want to be connected, but guess what we are? And we're connected also ultimately to the head, to Christ. Without him, you remove him, and we're just a dead body. We have no identity. We have no purpose. But with him as the head, we now belong to him. We belong to each other. We're responsible to him. We're responsible for one another. And we're growing. You see it in that text? It mentions it a couple of times. We're growing. It doesn't necessarily mean that we just bring more people in, but it means that our relationship with Jesus becomes more and more like a mature person. Maturity, we're, we're, our spiritual formation is happening, and we're doing that with Christ, and we're also doing that with one another. The distance between us and God gets smaller and smaller, and the distance between one another gets smaller and smaller. We're also God's bride. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave, Christ gave himself up for us, that he might sanctify us, cleansing us by the washing of water with the worst, that he might present us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that we might be holy and without blemish. See, we have someone that's gone before us who is washing us even now. He's making us holy. He's cherishing us. He's given himself up for us. What an honor it is to be part of God's family. What an honor it is to be here together. See, he is the cornerstone, the head, the groom. We are his building, his body, and his bride. You, do you view the church that way? See, in, this, in Mark chapter 3, God is, through Jesus, is trying to show us what the family of God looks like. It's more than just the here and now. Man, there's so, many, so much more in terms of eternity. It's as though Jesus is saying, come further up, come further in. Don't just, don't just take this earthly thing and make it, make it your end all. But man, come with me. Earthly family is important, but he has something better in mind. And I think the reason why he's doing this is he wants to show us ultimately his kingdom, what it means to be a disciple, but he's inviting us into eternity right now. He's inviting us into eternity right now because he's showing us as we understand the body, we have a better understanding of what heaven is going to be like. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for this moment, this opportunity to be with you. 
We're humbled that you have gone before us. Help us to see you, to trust and obey in a way that would make you proud. We know we cannot do it on our own. And so we are grateful for the body, this holy group of people that you have put together, that we may pursue you together. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.